Hi guys, before we start this week's episode, we've received a top secret encoded message. Uh, that sounds dangerous. Let's play it. Good evening, Spy Hearts. Three years ago, you embarked on a cloak and dagger assignment to decode the knock list. Um, what's taken so long? In your absence, Central Intelligence has uncovered a dangerous criminal organization wreaking havoc upon the world of spy movies. This bad company is responsible for some of the worst cinematic confusion we've ever seen. They may even be the reason one of our dinosaurs is missing. And the general consensus is that they intend to deconstruct our black book of spy movie knowledge, plunging the world of spy movies into chaos with no way out. And I'm just so scared that I won't know what my favorite spy movies are anymore. <clears throat> Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to beat this notorious cabal to the punch and uncover the spy movie origin of the knock list itself. Then, deliver that information to the house on 92nd Street. You have full use of the spy network, and the recruitment of your team is up to you. Although why any confidential agent worth their salt would want to work with you is beyond me. As always, should you or any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. Which won't be difficult, because none of us know what you've been doing anyway. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Gotcha! <laughs> No, but seriously, you should step away from the package now. Well, Cam, seems like we have an impossible mission ahead of us. But you said we could power rank the villains of the Living Daylights now. Whitaker can wait. It's time. Light the fuse. Hello, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. Those damn Gideons. Them and their stamps. Those damn Gideons. <laughs> Love leaving them books around, don't they? <laughs> they really do. I am Ken the Provocateur. Joining you for, I think, a very momentous episode. Yes, uh, I think maybe we should just talk about that for a second because it's finally happened. We finally <laughs> accepted our mission. Perhaps three years late to some people, but I've always been fashionably late to parties. Yeah, uh, we we got your emails, people. We got your oh, emails, yeah. your tweets, your Facebook messages, your uh, Snapchats, or whatever. <laughs> oh, wow, you just showed your age there, Cam, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> You kids in your vines or whatever. Your your ticky tockies. I don't know what you're doing. I'm from the Friendster <sighs> generation. Everything else scares me. Uh, yeah, and that's very much of this film because uh, you know we were we're heading back to one of my favorite decades this week. But I think you know before we talk about the film, you know we have already spoken about Dead Reckoning Part One. Yep. So we've already kind of broken the spell, but I, I'm kind of glad we waited this long to talk about this film. 
because the last three years, it's taken three years, has really given me a lot of knowledge on what doesn't doesn't work for a spy film. Right. And to fully appraise this film, I feel much better about it now than maybe I would have three years ago. And you can go back and listen to our first episode on Goldeneye. I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and fresh-faced and had never done a podcast before, more or less in my life. I wonder what Goldeneye would sound like now if I was reviewing it from, you know, three years later. You had never visited the house on 92nd Street when you did Goldeneye. I hadn't. And look at me now. Look at me now. You had never danced with the little drummer girl. I, I had not. I had never gone for a swim with uh, Big Jim McLean. No, no. Or the Macintosh man. <laughs> or the Macintosh man. But we're doing it again, Cam. We're prolonging it. Yeah. We're not talking about the film. So I'm going to ask you the question. Yeah. The people have wanted me to ask you for three years. Cam, what on earth are we talking about this week? We are talking about 1996's Mission Impossible, starring Tom Cruise and directed by Brian De Palma. Folks, we know you guys have waited a long time for Mission Impossible. Frankly, we have waited a long time for Mission Impossible as well. Part of the issue is when you are scheduling a weekly spy movie podcast, and you look at your master list of all the movies you have to tackle, you want to space out kind of the big ones because otherwise you're burning through the Bonds, the Bournes, the Harry Palmers, the Mission Impossibles, and then you have like five years of obscure 1930s B-movies. And look, we're happy to talk about, you know, Sleeping Car to Trieste every week. Hell yeah. That's absolutely fine. It's a fun film. But we know you guys want to hear the big ones, too. So I think the best way to do it is to space it out and for you to find some new films you love and hate in between in the meantime. But if for some strange reason Hmm. you've never seen Mission Impossible from 1996, here is your Letterboxd.com synopsis. Mission Impossible. Expect the impossible. When Ethan Hunt, the leader of a crack espionage team, he's not the leader. This is wrong. <laughs> Disavowed. Where's my Disavowed. slide whistle? Where's my Disavowed. slide whistle? <laughs> totally worth the five minute pause that took to find the slide whistle. Stop breaking the magic. <laughs> I'll start again and everyone can just critique it along with me. When Ethan Hunt, the second in charge of a crack espionage team whose perilous operation has gone awry with no explanation, discovers that a mole has penetrated the CIA. He's surprised to learn that he's the number one suspect. To clear his name, Hunt now must ferret out the real double agent, and in the process, even the score. Well, bum, 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 (laughs) bum, 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 ferret out. It lost me with the uh, you know incorrect information up front, mm. but it won me back. It stole my heart with the word ferret there. Yeah, I, I, it's it's such a punt that I'm like, okay, I, I've never really gone like ferret out in a sentence, but I've now said it, so I'm happy. I actually was looking at adopting two ferrets at one point in my life. Uh, so yeah, I have a special soft spot for ferrets. If you do ever get ferrets, you have to call one of them Ethan Hunt now. <laughs> I was not able to get them because of my apartment. Uh, it was like, we don't want <laughs> these creatures. They're like, ferrets that... out! Ferrets <laughs> out! <laughs> they were like, we don't want these creatures that are known to burrow into walls. Thank you very much. 
Uh, that's very logical of them. I'm. I think I'm actually with your housing association on this one. I think life turned out okay as it as it you know unfolded without them. Yes, you have twenty eight chipmunks. That's right. <laughs> They're crawling on me now. Help! Help! <laughs> I want the ferrets in. <laughs> but let's go back to nineteen ninety six. What were you doing, Cam, in nineteen ninety six? And did you partake in the mania that was Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible? Not really. Um, I remember that like summer 1996 was one of those pivotal points in my movie going life where I became very, very aware of like the whole concept of summer movie season. I knew in the past, you know, that like the first Ninja Turtles movie or Jurassic Park that I was seeing these in the summer. But it wasn't really until this 1996 year that I became very aware of just like studios scheduling these very specific seasons full of blockbusters. Mm -hmm. And I had my Entertainment Weekly subscription probably in 1995. And so I was like really tracking all the big movies that were coming out in 96. And so like Independence Day was a big deal for me. But even though I wasn't seeing a ton of the movies that came out this summer in theaters, I was 100% seeing them all as soon as they hit home video. And I was very aware of them. So, you know, I did see like The Rock in theaters, but I didn't go and see Twister. I didn't go and see The Nutty Professor. Uh, Eraser, I didn't see in theaters. But these were all movies that I was tracking down one after another as they hit video. And that was the case with Mission Impossible as well. And I do remember the first time I watched it being somewhat underwhelmed. Uh, you know, 16 or I guess 15-year-old... No, it was probably 16 at the time. 16-year-old Cam really liked his action movies. You know, he grew up on Arnold Schwarzenegger action films. He'd watched all the Van Damme, Seagal, all those sorts of guys, a lot of the Stallone stuff. I kind of, you know, at that time period really liked my kind of straightforward action movies mm -hmm. and mission impossible didn't really wow me bond movies always worked for me because they're so set piece driven whereas like this one so much of it was kind of plot driven and it was very confusing to me at that young age i was completely baffled by what was going on and so i, I didn't dislike it i walked out going yeah like thinking like yeah that was pretty good mm -hmm. but it was actually I, I really have to credit my friend derek at the time who was fascinated with this movie your friends get so many shout outs in this show like mark i know derek tyler they just you, you, you like name drop all these people and everyone listening is like who are these who are these people i don't know them i want people to realize out there i have friends beyond you <laughs> wait 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 these are all the names of your chipmunks right that is also true but yes right. uh derek was obsessed with this movie and <laughs> So he was like watching it over and over and over again, and he roped me into this. So because of him, I would sit and watch Mission Impossible over and over, just basically tracking the plot. That was what it became, the two of us obsessing over pinning down every little nugget as to how this entire movie worked from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. So it had like an intrigue to him that ultimately carried over to me, and it became a movie that I got really obsessed with, and I probably watched it like 20 times back in, uh, wow. it would have been the late 90s. It probably took like a year or so um, after the release on VHS before I started doing that and watching it with him. But it was a very special movie for me at the time. I didn't expect you to have that sort of connection to it. That's actually really nice. Yeah. I have far less of a connection. <laughs> I didn't go and see it in theaters, but I watched it on home video. I remember it being a big like blockbuster video when it came out. This was one of the ones to rent. So my family rented it and we watched it all together. 
And speaking of watched it all together, I haven't got a story on Mission Impossible, but I have got a story on one of the other films you mentioned from this year, I think, which is Independence Day. Yeah. I saw Independence Day on the big screen on a beach. Whoa. Weirdest moment of my life. I still remember it vividly. Now, the organizers, this is this, and for people who want to figure out where it was and where it happened, if you wanted to, it's on Towan Beach in Newquay in Cornwall, England. Look it up. Lo- lovely beach, great surf. And this is, you know, 1996. I was nine. So they had this like nighttime camp out on the beach, watch a big film, bring your blankets down. What they didn't account for was the tide. Okay. It started out, out, tide was out. By about halfway, we noticed that tide was coming in pretty quickly, folks. And by the last, like, you know, 10 minutes when Randy Quaid shoving a rocket into uh, or a ship into a ship, uh, that tide was way in and everyone was basically standing on top of each other and uh, not very comfortable. So my viewing experience of Independence Day was weird, but memorable. I have a question. When, sure. when the water started rolling in, did you yell to everyone, welcome to surf? I should have. <laughs> I genuinely should have. Uh, nine-year-old me wasn't quite as switched on as you are, Cam. Thank you. <laughs> mm. Didn't have clearly enough ferrets or chipmunks in my life. Mm. But yeah, I did watch Mission Impossible with the family. I remember really enjoying it as like an action film, but not really digesting it any more than that. There was no diving into its labyrinthian plot and the intricacies of the spy work involved, which hopefully we'll get into. But there was no digging into sort of the the spy plot because I was nine or actually probably about 10 by the point this came out on on VHS. So had a good time with it, but that was about it. I know this because I was very much into Mission Impossible 2, which we'll get to in the future, and watched Mission Impossible a few times, the first one, to prepare for two. So I had seen it a few times because I remember watching that before I saw two Mm. in the theaters. But yeah, we'll get there. But then the next question becomes, you know, people can go and find this. But Cam and I have watched the first couple of Mission Impossible TV series episodes on a now defunct podcast with some friends of ours called Mission Impossible. We watched a couple of episodes for their show. And so I've seen you know, the pilot and a couple of episodes of the first season. But how did that TV show, that beloved spy TV show from the 60s and I think 80s it came back, how did that get turned into a major motion picture? Well, yeah, I should actually note that I'm in the same boat as you. I saw a couple episodes for that podcast, but beyond that, I had zero experience with the show. Mm. Um, so I guess going forward, that's just a warning bell to everyone. We are not precious about the TV show. So uh, sorry about that. We'll get a guest on on a future Mission Impossible review who has much more experience with the TV show. Yeah, we're not like Phelps hards. We are not. No. So... Uh, Tom Cruise had paired with Paula Wagner to start a production company called Cruise Wagner Productions, and they were looking for their first project. Great name. And they decided that they want to uh, that they wanted to reboot this classic TV show, which had aired from 1966 to 73. Tom Cruise saw it as a star vehicle for himself, and this was also an era where just like adapting TV shows was big business. Mm-hmm. So they would have been probably looking at grabbing these rights pretty darn shortly after The Fugitive came out. I would think it would be very close to that. It might have been a little before the movie came out, but timeline-wise, it's very close to around the time of the smashing success of The Fugitive. I hadn't really 
connected those dots, but I think you're probably right. That was that like is that known as the first big TV to screen adaptation that did really well, or at least the '90s equivalent of that? It's the first one that had widespread recognition as a very good film and had industry respect. Like you can look in '94, there was the the Flintstones, okay. which was heavily yeah. marketed and a Steven Spielberg produced film, but like critically panned uh, a real disaster production i you know some people have some fondness for it i didn't hate it when i saw it at the time it was fine i enjoyed it as a kid it was fine but it was a heavily promoted event but it just became like this big craze Mm -hmm. in this time period to adapt these classic tv shows for the big screen even though like (laughs) it was just a different era where they didn't really care about the actual television show in terms of like fidelity to source material you know, just not the sure. thing. Yeah. Even the same applies to comic book movies at the time, too. It was like, take the characters, turf the rest. We can kind of figure out our own stories from there. I mean, everything was warming up for Wild Wild West, obviously. Exactly. That's right. 1999 was around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that one may have ended the TV to film adaptation <laughs> craze, actually. <laughs> now that I think about it. All it took was a Will Smith and a giant spider. Yeah, I know Bewitched came out a few years later, but that one felt like more of an afterthought. Uh, I think Wild Wild West may have been the last big budget one. Sorry, Kevin Klein. Mm, yes. So initially, the producers were working with um, Sidney Pollack to direct the film. And Sidney Pollack had, of course, helmed uh, Three Days of the Condor back in the day. And they worked with him for a few months, and they looked at a couple different drafts of a script. They just didn't like anything. Um, And ultimately, things took a turn just by sheer coincidence. Tom Cruise liked to go out to dinner with Steven Spielberg. That was just one one of his favorite pastimes. As you do. Yeah, and he often liked to go and sit and watch Steven Spielberg's movies with him and have Spielberg talk him through the entire movie. Basically, shot from shot to shot, how he did everything. And he mentioned in a documentary that when it came to watching Saving Private Ryan, he kind of badgered Spielberg for like five minutes. And then it was just like, I'll ask you questions at the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's uh, probably fair to shut up and just enjoy that one. Yeah, I think so too. But they would have dinner together, typically, and uh, before these movies. And one time, Tom Cruise went over and um, Brian De Palma was there. And De Palma was a longtime friend of Spielberg's. He was coming up the same era as Spielberg. He was friends also with George Lucas, Ron Howard, all those kind of like up-and-coming movie brats at the time who ultimately mm-hmm. took over Hollywood. And at the time, like in those younger years, Brian De Palma was very much seen as kind of the, the alpha dog of the group. They were all in awe of Brian De Palma because of his unbelievable mastery of the camera. And so you would often have these stories of like George Lucas and Spielberg running to De Palma for like advice on what they should do. What do I do about these 8080s? <laughs> the Palmer's like, well, let me tell you, kid. Well, like famously, when George Lucas was working on Star Wars, he screened it to his friends. Oh, yeah. And Brian De Palma was the voice in the room being like, this is a disaster. <laughs> Which I think is actually an excellent segue for me to jump in there, Cam, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Because we want to treat the Mission Impossible films with as much reverence as the James Bond films. And with that in mind, we have two Spy Master interviews coming for you, to you, next week. The first one was a man involved in that process you're just talking about. And that is the editor to this film, to Mission Impossible 4, oh, and some other films like Star Wars. And his name is Paul Hirsch. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a pretty big name and a fantastic interview. You're going to learn a lot about this film just from that chat. That's coming out next week. And I may as well spoil the other one whilst I'm here, Cam. Yeah. And alongside our chat with Paul Hirsch next week, we have a member of the IMF team joining us. It is Miss Ingeborg Adapkuneti, who plays Hannah in the beginning of the film. She's part of the IMF team, and you uh, see her in the gala. She has the glasses that get darker with the button, and she gets blown up in a car. Lots of great stories to talk about with her working with Tom Cruise. Lots to look forward to there. So hopefully that's uh, a good start when it comes to our Mission Impossible interviews. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun for people to hear those. We've recorded them already, and I know that there's some great content there. So lots of good stories about behind the scenes on Mission Impossible. And uh, so, you know, kind of back to the behind the scenes. They were at this dinner, and Tom Cruise was just really impressed with Brian De Palma. He was a fan of his movies already, Mm -hmm. and the two of them just kind of clicked. And so Tom Cruise says he went home and basically watched De Palma movies for 14 hours. Uh, just basically seeing like what he could bring to this story. And that's what basically got De Palma the job. This just totally coincidental dinner. I mean, looking at De Palma's filmography, and I'm not someone that's overly familiar with his work. I've seen Scarface and I've seen The Untouchables. He doesn't strike me as a man that wants to do like mainstream action films. Well, he had done The Untouchables, which was an adaptation of a TV show. So he had that going for him. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, a little bit of background for people that don't know Brian De Palma particularly. Um, one of the uh, kind of great visual filmmakers of his time. Uh, he began in 1960 just with making shorts and kind of experimenting, and then he made kind of a series of movies that are incredibly quirky, often very experimental. Movies like Murder a la Mode, uh, Greetings, The Wedding Party. He was an early collaborator with Robert De Niro. That's where Robert De Niro kind of began to get his foothold and enter into the film industry. Um, And then in 1972, De Palma made a movie called Sisters with Margot Kidder that is a kind of horror thriller and really grabbed a cult audience. And he proceeded to kind of build on this cult audience with movies like Phantom of the Paradise. And then ultimately 1976's Carrie uh, was the one that really launched him into the big time. And famously, Carrie was casting the exact same time as Star Wars and at the same location. Him and George Lucas were testing actors for both movies at the same time. Mm. And so actors who tested for Carrie were also testing for Star Wars and vice versa. But Carrie, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel, massive hit. And that kind of like opened up the gates for Brian De Palma to enter into Hollywood big time. And he proceeded to do movies like Blowout, Dress to Kill, Scarface and Untouchables, which you mentioned, Casualties of War. He was someone who like, not everything was a smash hit, but Mm -hmm. every time he would deliver something visually incredible. And this was his follow-up to Carlito's Way, which was his reunion with um, Al Pacino following Scarface. So kind of like a proto-Tony Scott in that way. Not everything a hit, but usually very visually dynamic. Yeah, like, once you kind of watch Brian De Palma's filmography, you're like, you see how he brings the same style to everything he does. Like, he's incredibly specific. But I can say, like, in 1996, when I saw this movie, I didn't realize that. Oh, no, I wouldn't have at all. No. But that, I wasn't looking for that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's an added element to the film. And, and that's one of the things you're probably going to bring it up in a minute. But the Mission Impossible films wanted, originally, to have a different director and a different feel for each version and that's why the directors changed for the first five films yep and i've got a bit of a note on that i'll get to but initially as i said like Mm -hmm. they struggled with two drafts of a mission impossible screenplay that just went nowhere 
one of them was, I believe, done by Willard Hyuk and Gloria Katz, who had written uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and had worked with George Lucas um, for a bit. I think they also worked on Howard the Duck. But like that draft just didn't work. And so they went to Steve Zalian, who, you know, one of the big acclaimed writers still working today. He wrote Schindler's List and won an Oscar for it. Um, but we talked about him. His first film ever was Falcon and the Snowman in 1985. Nice. And he, this was his follow-up um, to both Schindler's List and Clear and Present Danger. So they really figured out kind of the, the plot of the movie and how it would kind of hold together in a way. But they were also, shortly after, working with David Kep, who is a very, very prolific writer. Um, and he is a story and screenplay credit. So he got his start in 1988 with a movie called Apartment Zero, which was a thriller. And then in the early 90s, really made his name. He did a movie called Toy Soldiers that was quite popular at the time, kind of a thriller drama. Um, he did um, Death Becomes Her for Robert Zemeckis, the Meryl Streep kind of supernatural comedy. Great film. And Jurassic Park. Oh, uh, a little known film. Kind of helps your career if you can make a Jurassic Park. <laughs> Just the first one. I don't think the rest of them particularly help your career. Yeah, and he'd also uh, written Carlito's Way for Brian De Palma. So that was kind of like the in with mm -hmm. De Palma. And this was his follow-up to the movie The Shadow, which didn't turn out so hot. But uh, that was a big project at the time. And the situation with Kep was... He has a story and screenplay credit. So he was basically taking the nuggets of what had been set up by, between Zellian and De Palma and writing a screenplay based on that. Mm -hmm. But he had to leave by a set point because he was going to direct the movie The Trigger Effect. David Kep does direct movies sometimes. He also did Secret Window with Johnny Depp, uh, Premium Rush with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He is someone who is primarily a screenwriter but does occasionally direct films. And uh, so he had an out point to go do the trigger effect, which in case people have forgotten that movie, it was with Elizabeth Shue and Kyle MacLachlan. It was a thriller about a power outage. Um, I saw it back in the day. I can't say it stuck with me, but uh, I did see it. <laughs> the trigger had no effect. Yeah. And like things get muddy because like they mentioned sometimes in production notes that Kep came back later and then other notes you'll find say he didn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm up in the air on that one. He either did or he didn't, but he was one of the contributors to this movie that was important. Okay. okay. But as you may note, we now have two very, very prominent Hollywood writers that have worked on this. Mm -hmm. They bring in a third, and that is Robert Town, who started out in Corman films and worked in an uncredited role uh, on some major films like Bonnie and Clyde, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And then got screenplay credits on two very important movies in the 1970s. The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson and Chinatown, also with Jack Nicholson, directed by Polanski. And he won an Oscar for that film. And from that point forward, Robert Town is kind of like your go-to guy for prestige filmmakers. Mm -hmm. He's also Warren Beatty's like collaborator for a long time. So he does uncredited work on Parallax View, Heaven Can Wait... And he's just like considered one of the great writers of his era. He's still alive, um, but uh, very, very prominent over the next several decades. Begins working with Tom Cruise with Days of Thunder. He has a screenplay credit on that film. Mm -hmm. And he also works on The Firm. And then he's continuing on that relationship, jumping over to Mission Impossible. So usually when there's like three credits, writing credits on a movie, you might go like, uh-oh. But in a case like this, when you have like three of the biggest professionals in Hollywood... You can see how, like, a messy process may actually work out okay. 
It's like having three handymen that are like highly acclaimed building you a boat. Yeah. Now, okay, they might have different processes to build a boat, but ultimately it's still a boat. So I think I could pretty much still take to sea with it. And they're all very good at building boats. Yeah. That was a strained analogy. I'm very sorry, everyone. <laughs> but it still works, goddammit, I tell you. In a movie with no boats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why didn't I go for helicopters or trains? Do you want to pull out a baseball metaphor as well? <laughs> <laughs> so De Palma basically, because the script was in such flux, he designed all the action sequences. And then he basically was like, this is what I want to do. Figure it out. That's, that is setting the standard for the Mission Impossible films going forward. It is all about, let's do these stunts and then work out a plot. Yeah. And so basically they had the action sequences and, you know, Robert Town was massaging them into a story that would work for the screen and using obviously the input from David Kep and Steve Zalian. Robert Town had a great quote and he said, fortunately for me at least... And then I guess ultimately for the film, what happened was that the first things that they shot were the blue screen stuff on the train and everything else. And as that was going on, Tom and I, we would go over the scenes that were to be shot and I would rewrite them in the middle of the night and sometimes even between takes. Frustrating for everyone on set, I would imagine. Yeah. And we'll come back to kind of the writing of Mission Impossible in a little bit. Okay. Um, But it was like something that was written about a lot at the time was just like the screenplay issues of Mission Impossible and the way they had to constantly rewrite over the course of the production. It was something that got a lot of press. I can imagine that's a lot to do with the character interactions and I'd said labyrinthian plot earlier. I'm not going to talk about whether it works for me just yet, but like the spy plot is quite rich. It is, especially when you compare it to something like James Bond, which people were the most familiar with as a blockbuster spy thing on mm-hmm. the big screen. And yeah. those plots can be kind of convoluted, but they're also, they don't really matter. Whereas this one's very dependent on you figuring out the details. Yeah, a lot, a lot of things pay off in this film if you're paying attention. Yeah, like if you don't understand like what the villains in uh, The Living Daylights are up to specifically, it doesn't really matter. Whereas here it kind of does camp people have been trying since 1987 to figure out what the villains of living daylights have been doing (laughs) no one has sussed it out yet or octopusy that's another good example yeah they're both i'll use my term labyrinthian again but uh yeah please continue so as i said in terms of the production brian de palma came up with the action sequences he knew what he wanted to do and they wanted to use francis high speed train the tgv and um rail authorities were like we don't really like this. This doesn't sound like a great idea to us. They were not thrilled, I think, with what was going to be depicted on screen. And so Tom Cruise went out to dinner with them, and uh, they agreed to do it. That <laughs> makes absolute sense to me. You put anyone in the room with Tom Cruise, they're probably going to win them over. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, in terms of, like, the production, it really was, like, the writing that was kind of the issue. In terms of the technical aspects, things were pretty clean. Another hiccup along the way was the score for the film. Alan Silvestri was hired to compose music for the film. And after the producers and De Palma heard what he had made, they were like, nope, not working for us. And so he was replaced pretty last minute with Danny Elfman, who had very limited time to put together a score for the film. And that, I mean, spoilers, I guess. But one of the things I have as a plus is I think the score is pretty wonderful for this. So I think Elfman pulled it out the bag. It's astonishing. Like when yeah. they have that cut to that train yeah. and that score kicks in, oh, 
It gives you chills. It's great. Uh, and I think it, it's a tough thing to go back and, and try and redo Lalo Schifrin's work. Mm-hmm. But Elfman, of all the people that have done scores, there's, there's not many that sort of rise above a certain level. This one is one of my favorites, but not the favorite. Yeah, and Silvestri, for people that don't know, you know, did movies like Predator and Back to mm-hmm. the Future. Yep. Great composer. Uh, it's just a case where, obviously, the, whatever they were looking for didn't match with what he was creating. And uh, there's also a larger point to look at. When you look at all the collaborators who are working on Mission Impossible, this was an A picture. They wanted the best of the best across the board. What do you think it was that didn't work about Silvestri's score? Like, I'm, I'm going to say there was too many bongos. <laughs> <laughs> too many zithers it's <laughs> sure, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. He, did, he did the entire score on mongos <laughs> a theremin <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounded like a 1950s sci-fi film <laughs> uh, like alan this just isn't what we're looking for right now and he's like Ooh, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> alan you've got to get help okay <laughs> um i mentioned earlier that uh, brian de palma good friends with george lucas Mm-hmm. And so he showed George Lucas an early cut of this film, which had a completely different opening to the film, which was much more grounded in the romantic triangle between Phelps, Hunt, and Claire. And George Lucas just said, what are you doing? He's like, this is the wrong opening. This is Mission Impossible. You need that group of people around a table figuring out what the plan is. And so they regathered everyone and did a reshoot and so that opening sequence that early sequence where you have the entire imf team around the table joking around and setting up the embassy mission mm-hmm. that was a george lucas suggestion which is one of the highlights of the film yeah and so like people give george lucas a lot of crap but when you go through a lot of the uh say indiana jones archives books uh his instinct for story is very strong i i think I've always said George Lucas is good with a filter. Mm, yeah. When when you put him as a number one and he has the final call, I don't know if it ever really works. You just look at the prequels. But yeah, like giving advice to people as a, an outsider, this is some tip-top advice. So thank you, George. Because Definitely. I wonder then in that in that opening, did they still have the fake out with the guy and they're interrogating him? Because that's a little bit of the romantic subtext with um, Biart and... Uh, and Tom Cruise. That's that's kind of there. That has to be there, I think. And that leads into more of the romantic triangle and then the embassy mission would be my guess. So initially, like the studio wanted a budget of 40 to 50 million for this movie, but Tom Cruise was like, this is a big movie, damn it. And so the budget is listed with different numbers. I've seen 62 million and I've seen 80 million. So it is uh, either one of those or somewhere in between. It was a very expensive movie for the time. I, I'm expecting you to say that it made its money back. Domestically, it did $181 million, which is more than Dead Reckoning has made. Uh, I was about to ask, how is Dead yeah. Reckoning doing at this point? Uh, I think we're about $20 million behind that at this point. Yeesh. And that's without inflation. Yeah. Uh, international it did 277 for a worldwide total of 458 million dollars in 1996 dollars that is incredible how did i mean just talking about sort of the spy boom that happened the year before really with goldeneye yeah how did goldeneye do compared to this if you can recall it no i believe goldeneye did i think it might have been under 100 million domestic 
whereas wow. this did 181. So at least okay. I would have to look up international numbers, but like at least in terms of domestic performance, this movie was quite a bit more successful than Goldeneye. I could, I could buy that though. Like it, Goldeneye sort of bringing back the spy movie trend, and then this is the next year, like injecting Tom Cruise. Mission Impossible is a known brand. You're bringing it to the big screen. I could see why people would turn up for this. Yeah. And it's Tom Cruise, right? Like Tom Cruise just prints movie tickets in those days. Like people are showing up for, I mentioned The Firm earlier. The Firm was a massive hit. That's like a legal drama, yeah. which nowadays would not make huge bucks. Didn't A Few Good Men come out a few years behind this as well and did really well? Yep. That was a big hit as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite films. Yeah. And mm. uh, so the top four for the year, normally I say three, but four is important. Okay. Number one was Independence Day. Number two was Twister, and this is at the worldwide box office. Number three was Mission Impossible. And number four was Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise had a big 1996. Wow. That is uh, something to be proud of. Yeah. Right there. Um, I watched Jerry Maguire years ago. But yeah, I know people are, are a big fan of it. But I mean, could he ever pull that off again now? Has he done that since? Or is this, was this the biggest year of Tom Cruise? I know obviously Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, Maverick were both very big years too. But I think if you adjust for inflation, this is probably... I don't know. Like The, the Maverick year is so big because that movie makes so, so much. That's well over a billion dollars. Yeah. So I'm not sure. You'd have to get out the calculator on that one. But okay. 96 and 2022 were big Tom Cruise years. You get him in your film, you're getting dollars. Unless you're dead reckoning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Where's that slide whistle gone? <laughs> oh. So uh, a couple other notes on this one. There's some award stuff. Huh. This movie was a PGA winner, and that's the Producers Guild for Most Promising Producer in Theatrical Motion Pictures. And that went to Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner off the success of this movie, kind of solidifying a partnership that would hold together till about 2008. And then they would kind of go their separate ways. But Tom Cruise as a producer has been very successful. I was going to chuck a joke saying everyone's favorite PGA. But to be <laughs> fair, well done to them. As a, as a budding production, their first time working together, not bad. Also, both of them are really great golfers. So it was actually a dual win. Was that that is actually is that true? Or are you just yeah. joking? <laughs> the Professional <laughs> Golf Association. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, Tom, we need you, buddy. This was also a Razzie nominee. What? For worst written film grossing over a hundred million. Yeah, like okay. I'm okay with the Razzies. I like poking fun at mainstream cinema and people's egos. I haven't got a problem with that because I think some people's are egos need a bit of deflation from time to time. But this film I, I don't see it deserving a Razzie for its script. This kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how much was being written about this movie in terms of this messy behind the scenes with the screenwriting. Okay. Uh, and like nowadays, it's so common to have constant writers putting these things into shape. You know, Marvel movies, they pre mm -hmm. all the action sequences and then ask people to write around them. That's like the norm for them. Yeah. But in these yeah. days, this was seen as like, what is going on over there? This is crazy town. Yeah, but like then you see the proof, and you're like, oh, okay, well it worked out, right? Like, what were the, I, what were the Razzies smoking that year? You know, you look at reviews at the time. This movie was actually 
mm, pretty middling reviews in a lot of ways. A lot of a lot of critics were like, "This movie's incomprehensible. This is so confusing." And if they could flash forward to the very bloated blockbusters of the 2020s, they would be like, "I'm sorry." <laughs> I, I, yeah, let's let's take like Roger Ebert out of 1996 and transport him into theaters in like 2019 or 18 or whatever. It isn't stick him in front of Endgame? Yeah, sure. What? Sure. Or, or the bad ones? Like drop him into a, like a Transformers film or something? Or Eternals? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, that would yeah. Okay, all right. We'll get into the plot. There's a lot to talk about. But yeah, any more behind the scenes for us? Yeah, this was also a Grammy nominee for Best Pop Instrumental Performance by Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton of U2, who did their remix of the Schifrin theme song for this film. Okay. And that was actually a big hit. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier that you know they like to switch up directors on this franchise. Not initially the plan. Oh, Brian De Palma has a quote about this. He says, Stories, they keep making them longer and longer only for economic reasons. After I made Mission Impossible, Tom asked me to start working on the next one. I said, are you kidding me? One of these is enough. Why would anybody want to make another one? Of course, the reason they make another one is to make money. I was never a movie director to make money, which is the big problem of Hollywood. That's the corruption of Hollywood. Everyone just take a beat and let's all just slow clap Brian De Palma. (laughs) What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. He is the Martin Scorsese of the 1990s. Like, De Palma is an artist who worked in and does work in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, but someone who very clearly has set rules that he follows and is only interested in making movies that genuinely speak to him. I totally get it, though. Like, you've said all you wanted to say with that franchise. Move on. Yep. And, and I, I imagine he was like, you know, I'm not doing it unless I can have doves and slow-mo. Hmm. And they were like, you're insane. Why would we put those in a film? <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> oh. Okay, Cam, we are here. Let's talk about it. Mission Impossible, the year is 2023. A Mission Impossible film is still in theaters, apparently. But let's talk about the first one. What do you think of Mission Impossible now? This is possibly my favorite Mission Impossible film. I will have a solid answer on that when we actually get to the end of our Mission Impossible coverage. Um, but because there's a couple that I think vie for the spot. Yeah. Or really just one, I think, that vies for the spot for me. But um, this movie, to me, it's funny how much it was criticized for being convoluted. Whereas I find it's just like very fun setups and payoffs Mm -hmm. that require you to pay attention. And I think there's actually one scene I'll just highlight is maybe one of the things that broke a lot of audiences at the time, Mm -hmm. which is the moment where Tom Cruise is listening to John Voight and he's working through what happened during that embassy mission gone awry. Mm -hmm. And he's speaking out loud and saying what Jim Phelps had gone through while we are seeing flashbacks as to what actually happened. Or what he thinks happened. Exactly. He's mentally figuring it out while speaking something different. Mm -hmm. And I do think like in 1996, that may have been a little too sophisticated or at least sophisticated at a level that audiences weren't trained to necessarily pick up on. But when you see it now, you're like, this is so friggin' clever. Like to me, it's kind of the richness of the De Palma filmmaking. And I became much more invested in De Palma as a filmmaker over the last 15 years when I really dove into his work. And so for me, like, as a Mission Impossible movie, 
I love the propulsiveness of this one, that it is a under two hour barreling straight ahead from incredible set piece to incredible set piece with characters that pop on screen. All that stuff really works for me. But it's like the De Palma style to it that to me is just like raising it up that extra level. There are so many De Palma motifs. Maybe I'll do like a checklist or something when we get into the body of the review. But like this is through and through a Brian De Palma film. And it's the sort of thing that I fell in love with without knowing his work. Um, back in the day, I fell in love with the style of John Woo in the second one, and something that I very much was looking for with the Mission Impossible series that they ultimately kind of abandoned, which was very specific visionary filmmakers kind of roping these into a form of what represented their work. And to me, this is just one of the great De Palma blockbusters. Um, and as a Mission Impossible movie, there's so much fun to it. It is just... To me, almost every scene of this movie feels alive. I've got a lot to take apart in what you just said, but like my overall thoughts I'll get to in a second. But I want to touch on something you mentioned. It's one of my top notes as well. Is uh, Firstly, just how well this film charts its spy story. That it is, to some people, and probably still now, somewhat impenetrable. Mm -hmm. I can understand why. I think that scene you mentioned in the, in the train station in London is probably exactly the moment where people lose it. I'm going to propose something right now that we may use again going forward. We may have to finesse the name, we may have to finesse the films, but I think we need to devise a sliding scale in which films are like charted based on how like complex the spy story is. On one end, you've got things like Funeral in Berlin, right, and Falcon and, and the Snowman, where they're just like. I've, there's so much like I don't know what's happening. On the other end, it's like cats and dogs. Sure, like it. It oh, spies do this. The MacGuffin done. Well, like Spy Kids. Like that. I mean, these are kids' films, but there are other examples, and maybe we can try and plot it out. This falls closer to the funeral in Berlin the side of the scale. Yeah, but it's not one of those ones. And there are a couple that we've tackled over the years. Maybe that they'll be further along the scale, perhaps that have so many levels but don't give you the information to figure it out they just kind of you know like the twist at the end of no way out there are sure. tiny little nuggets the tiny little nuggets you can pick up and figure it out but really that twist comes out of nowhere for most people it doesn't really set the foundation all of your foundation is here mm -hmm. all of the character work is there to to inform the decisions that happen later on in the film it gives you every bit of information you need and i think that scene much as i have seen this film at least 10 times i can quite easily pick up on what's happening it gives you all the information you need so i don't think it's so far gone that it's off the end of this chart no i think this movie does two things i think it demands your attention which is not something that say like uh, independence day or eraser were doing in the summer of 1996 or twister you know, like they were sit back, eat your popcorn and just kind of like go along for the ride. Mm -hmm. I think you can enjoy this movie just in terms of set pieces. But I think if you are to try to follow it on a plot level, it demands you pay attention to the details, mm -hmm. which isn't always the case with uh, blockbuster entertainment. And I think also it heavily rewards repeat visits, which yep. is not something you can expect either. A lot of people would watch Mission Impossible, I'm sure in 1996 walk out, go, eh, it was confusing or whatever, or I, or you know, perhaps I liked it, but never revisit it again. And it's a movie that I think gets better and better the more times you watch it. 
Yeah, I would agree. And I'm I'm challenging people out there in the, the listenership in the world. If you want to come up with a sliding scale, a little graph for us, make it in Excel and send it to us or you know put it on social media we will retweet that to the heavens because i think there is actually something to be said about making the scale official moving forward where we can measure things we'll have to come up with a name for the scale yeah uh we'll have to workshop that one behind the scenes yeah we'll we'll let you know but that that's that's coming and and we may start measuring things by that going forward but i'm going to talk about it for a second how i feel about this and this is the informed scott three years of watching spy movies looking at this film it's an instant classic it i i tried to take my like watching it as a kid head out of this when i was watching it again today and just sort of come at it with like my spy movie knowledge and be like how how has de palma crafted this film i can't fault almost a single moment of it i've got some dislikes that maybe we'll get into there are a couple of nitpicks of course but me too you know there's like the character work is top notch for the most part. There is one thing I have an issue with there, but uh huh. I think we both are on the same page there. Nice to hear it. But like that, it's chained beautifully in between these action sequences that are so well choreographed. There's not a moment that you don't lose track of what everyone's doing at any time. It all flows. It's all well set up. I just wish that Amido Estevez had slightly moved sideways to avoid those spikes. That is an incredible moment. Like I have never forgotten that since the moment I saw it the first time. That, like, I don't even know what they are. Those like spikes, like impaling his head, yeah. are just like it's incredible to me what you could get away with in a PG thirteen. You see it go in ever so slightly, yeah. Like like the knife in Psycho, you just about see something happen. You do, and then you also have John Voight faking his death, but you don't know that at the moment. Yeah. You know, with the blood all over his hands. I don't know that you would get away with that in a PG-13 now. They tend to um, remove blood. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if I would have been allowed to go and see this at the age of nine in theaters. Let us know. Yeah. If you guys saw it when you were a kid, if you got in fine, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, yeah. But to me, like, it just feels like it's interesting what kind of passes a PG-13 then versus now. Yeah. In some ways, you could say movies are more violent for a PG-13 where you would have way more gun violence, mm-hmm. but bloodless in a PG-13. But in a movie like this, you have you know people getting stabbed, bloody knives, things like that, which to me, I think would not be happening on a big screen now. No, but like, it's interesting that De Palma managed to, despite never wanting to do another one of these films managed to create basically the blueprint for all mission impossible films going forward it is great character work chaining together fantastical impossible action sequences it's in the name and this film it's amazing how much it delivers what you would expect from a mission impossible film so quickly and you know you look at like people will always compare it to bond although i will say they're slightly different franchises dr no has a lot of what becomes bond not all of it not all of the eon accoutrement but most of it mission impossible one is a fully realized mission impossible film but like i said i absolutely adore this film i adored it when i saw it the first time i still adore it now for different reasons i've definitely matured in my viewing but i love 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 this film and speaking of love let's green light and look at the likes so I've spoken about some of it, but really what I want to focus on in terms of my likes are the set pieces. I think they work so well in this film, from the gala to the Kittredge meeting in the water restaurant. That's such a weird restaurant, by the way. I really hope it exists in real life. Yeah, didn't Tom Cruise say that was the most dangerous stunt he'd ever done? 
I could buy it. That's a lot of water crashing down on you very fast. And they also like set it up, and De Palma was like, "Yeah, we can't like uh, use a stuntman. It doesn't work with wh- how I want to shoot this." And so Cruz didn't even have like a good idea as to when it was going to go off. So he just that's just him reacting, is it? Yeah, yeah, and he's wow. because I think like I think it was maybe the Graham Norton show they asked about this because I mm. think the expectation was he's going to say, "Oh, the Burj Khalifa." Or sure. hanging onto the plane in Rogue Nation, things like that. But he mentioned the that this um, fish tank explosion was the moment, just because it was a little chaotically shot. And, and it is. It's frenetic. It's like it's a burst of you know power in a very tense scene. It's also a release in many ways because it's your hero getting away. But yeah, like I said, that the Langley heist and then the train sequence on you know in the Channel Tunnel at the end. It's massively well-realized and executed moment after another. And, I mean, there's one highlight I think that's probably the best, but I'm going to ask you the question. What do you think is the highlight moment of the film when it comes to set pieces? I think the Langley break-in is the moment for me. And I will just say, though, I'll come back to that in a second, that the finale on the uh, train, I think, like, it's impressive to me that it was largely done using 1996 CG, and it actually somewhat holds up. You can see the seams, yeah. but mm-hmm. I'm sorry, there are far worse looking movies from that era and from probably a year ago uh, in comparison to this. Like, watch The Flash and then go and watch Mission Impossible and go like, well, Mission Impossible may look a little dated there, but it still works. Like, it's still dramatically exciting and thrilling, and uh, it's a you know crackerjack finale to the movie. Mm-hmm. So just wanted to note that. But I mean... In terms of that Langley break-in, this is to me just like the genius of De Palma, which is his complete understanding of geography mm-hmm. and timing and cinematography and the way that like he takes all the various plot elements and works with, obviously, you know, he had a great cinematographer that he'd worked with many a times, Stephen H. Burham. He had Paul Hirsch editing this film. And then, uh, you know, you've got committed actors. But like the way that he has that voiceover, and sets up all the rules you need to know for this vault. And then you go through and you watch things happen all visually. This sequence is largely silent. You could play both Mm -hmm. this and the train sequence silently, and they would work. But when you see like the sweat on Tom Cruise's glasses, you immediately flash back to, you've been told that if that sweat hits the ground, it's going to sound the alarm. You know all the rules and all the dangers that are going on moment to moment in that sequence. And... It's such a simple thing. Break into a vault, you know, steal a knock list off a computer. That's the whole concept of the scene. But how De Palma turns that into an absolute masterpiece of a sequence, that's why you hire De Palmas to make moments like this. And say you're going to watch this for the first time now. You've never watched Mission Impossible. And you'll probably watch that scene and maybe appreciate it a little bit less than someone who watched it in 1996. Because this scene has been lampooned countless times since oh yeah and also just and riffed on and like added to countless times since but people forget this is i mean department kind of came up with this I mean, the, the, of other like laser break-ins and stuff that have happened before this but this is the premium article of how you do that and people have been adding to that and trying their own versions of that ever since so it may seem like it is you know quite tame now compared to like what's happening in the mission impossible films at the moment but that was a spectacle and like as you say there's no score playing 
it is man versus the obstacle in front of him, a physical obstacle of trying to get this data out of this machine without triggering uh, the alarms. And you've got all these sort of ticking clocks going on around you. You've got Dunlow next door crapping his pants out. There's a ticking time bomb going on during the whole thing. And it's it's great. Yeah, I mean, the way that he's switching between genuinely funny moments like this mm -hmm. has comedy built in throughout the film but this sequence in particular is often very funny and he's bouncing between that to high ratcheted tension mm -hmm. it's just masterful you know um De Palma was like a student of Alfred Hitchcock he was obsessed with Hitchcock's work he brings that to everything he does he never understood why his peers weren't looking to Hitchcock for inspiration in the same way like he said you know Hitchcock created the tools why aren't we using them and so over the course of his career Hitchcock was the master of suspense. De Palma became known as the master of the macabre because he had a little more of a twisted sense about him. But you see the way that he's using Hitchcockian filmmaking to tell the sequence and has that same kind of like dark humor going on. And, you know, this also utilizes one of De Palma's trademarks, which is the split diopter shot, which is done where you have basically a lens that takes up half the camera lens to basically create the image so it's in focus, both nearsighted and farsighted mm -hmm. on alternate sides of the camera. And you have a scene where you have Dunlow down below in focus and close up, Tom Cruise in the background near the ceiling in focus as well. And it just looks incredible. He does the same thing with Jean Renault and the rat coming down the yep. hallway where it's a mm -hmm. close up of Jean Renault's face with the rat. And it's just all the techniques that De Palma makes just work for him constantly over and over again in all his films. You can see in the movie Femme Fatale where he has an opening heist sequence that is very similar to something like this heist here. And it's just him like using these tools perfectly. And I know he sold Tom Cruise on this by calling him up and saying he wanted to do a sequence like the movie Rafifi, which is a heist film that has like really effective, tense, procedural heist sequences. Mm -hmm. And Tom Cruise was like, that sounds perfect. Let's do that. And the fact that De Palma doesn't just look at his influences and say, well, can I kind of copy that? He manages to kind of like one-up them. That is a testament to his skill as an artist because a lot of people, when you hear the homage, it's not as good as the original. Like they are uh, kind of doing a lesser copy. No, I, I completely agree. And the sequence is astounding to look at. And I was thinking just about De Palma for a second there when you were talking about him. Has Mission Impossible's most comparable spy franchise is obviously james bond i'm not going to try and draw that many comparisons in this episode because i think mission impossible stands alone but has bond ever had a director of this caliber directing any of its films no no um i think sam mendes is the closest they've gotten and that he has a very specific style but he's not like a visual innovator in the way De palma is no yeah because i would say like skyfall a lot of the visuals people always sort of commend Skyfall for its visuals that comes more from its cinematographer yeah Roger Deakins who yeah, yeah definitely uh is pretty much the top of his field I would say like Mendes what he brings really in terms of visually dynamic elements is the um long take at the start of Spectre mm -hmm. uh, which obviously he would develop when he did 1917 as well like that's kind of I think his most ambitious visual element but like De Palma was famed for this like there was lots of movies of his that critics hated but they would be mm. like they look incredible <laughs> but yeah what about you i i yeah we sort of both chose the langley heist as our favorites is there any other scenes you'd like to call out 
Well, maybe it's just time for me to uh, continue my love of De Palma, and I'll kind of give the checklist as to what he's doing here, which is, mm -hmm. you know, as I said, he is just a complete student of Hitchcock, and uh, Hitchcock had his obsessions, and so does De Palma, and one of those things is voyeurism. That is a huge element of this movie. You are constantly seeing POV uh, through the eyes of the characters, both th because of the glasses that, you know, they use, mm -hmm. uh, but also just because he will find sequences that he will just show through that perspective. That is a huge part of De Palma's filmmaking. Fans of The Untouchables may remember the murder of Sean Connery, which is played through the eyes of the assailant in that sequence where he's breaking into uh, Sean Connery's house. So that is a big De Palma element. Also, um, I mentioned the split diopters. Floating camera, that is a big aspect of this movie as well, where the camera just seems to be floating. He always knows exactly how to move it, where it feels so graceful, but it just pulls you into the movie. The Dutch angles that are used throughout this movie, also very uh, De Palma. Oh. Um, to me, he's a stylist who knows how to use them. The thing is, people who use them don't know how to use them. He knows how to make it visually dynamic. A Dutch angle is not a bad thing, but a Dutch angle used poorly is a bad thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I will just chime in for a second. I know you want to talk about De Palma a little bit more, but like... Yeah. I had a massive problem with the... Famously had a massive problem with the Dutch angles in the Ipcus file. Right. You, less so. You think it worked with the film. Totally fine. We can both have our takes on that. I will just say, for those keeping track, I think it worked in this film. Yeah. It has an overall visual style to the entire film that just mm -hmm. works for me. And uh, Brian De Palma, a bit of a pervert. And I think he would uh, wink and say, yep, that comes across in all my work. You know, people talk about Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish. Uh, that shows up in his work. Uh, De Palma, you know what he's into based on his work. And it's very telling to me that you've got the opening, Emmanuel Bierre in the black lingerie. Um, black lingerie is a constant in De Palma films. So much so that you're wearing some now. That is right. I am getting into the mood for the film, yes. And I'm watching you very closely from a POV shot. It's, it's De Palma-esque. Yeah. So to me, like, this movie has so much richness just from his filmmaking standpoint, like you could easily sit and watch Blowout and then watch this film and just kind of chart the connective tissue and the long extended takes that he's constantly pushing the boundaries as to what you can do, where you often find yourself asking like, where did he put the camera? Mm -hmm. Because it just feels like he's getting impossible shots and impossible. No. Uh, and this is the right assignment for him. Well then, let's bounce it over to something you want to talk about we, we sort of expanded on that from the set pieces but like something you liked i don't normally name casting directors when we talk about movies but i think like uh Maylee finn does an incredible job filling out this cast tom cruise is a perfect lead for this film like he knows that he's the one producing this film he knows that this is a great showpiece for him mm -hmm. but the way he is so dogged throughout this film he is a big reason the pace works the way it does is because you feel his energy carrying this movie mm -hmm. i don't know who ethan hunt is as a person at this point because the ethan hunt <laughs> in this movie is very very different than the ethan hunt we see in dead reckoning although you do see the start of the cradling dying women in his arms thing which kicks off at the end of this movie yeah but i mean there is so many moments where you just have the intensity of Tom Cruise's face that leads into a set piece, and you are carried along through his performance. It's not the sort of performance that's going to win Oscars or anything like that, but it's essential to the movie. And when I look at the breakdown of like this overall cast, it's an incredible cast. It's a lot of stars. But like the two I'm just going to highlight, and you may have some, maybe I'd like to hear some from you who 
stand out as well. Sure, yeah. Uh, Ving Rhames is brilliantly cast against the type that people would have looked at him at in that point in time. This is like two years after Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. He is Marcellus Wallace. Marcellus Wallace is not a nice man. And the way he is set up as a disavowed agent, and you know that there is a rat involved in this operation, all eyes are on Ving Rhames because of the concept of typecasting. People at this point in time would have thought, this is an actor who plays villains. Mm -hmm. And the way they make him funny and warm and a character we're still with all these decades later, just absolutely genius. And the other one I want to mention is Vanessa Redgrave, who as Max, the uh, information broker, Mm -hmm. has the most chemistry with Tom Cruise of any female actor I've ever seen in any film he's ever made. She is just flirting. She's so much fun. And to watch the two of them together, I'm like, give me a two-hour Ethan Hunt Max movie every two years, please. This is so bizarre because it's the exact same sort of relationship you have between Vin Diesel and Helen Mirren. Yes. In the Fast films. And like, this shouldn't work, but somehow these two seem very compatible. Vin Diesel has the most amount of like, sexual tension with Helen Mirren in those films (laughs) that he's ever had with any of his stars he's ever worked with. And I get exactly what you mean with Vanessa Redgrave. Let's explore that. Why do you think it is? I have a theory. I have an idea. It may not be worded exactly the way you word yours, but I think probably will come to the same, which is he doesn't feel like he needs to present himself in a certain way in front of these people because he doesn't feel like they are an equal to him because they're older. And so he's just more relaxed and he's able to just sort of be closer to what Vin Diesel is as a person or he doesn't feel like he has to like present himself as this big tough guy in front of these people. He's, He's just more like loose. Yeah. Is that, is that what you were thinking? Along those lines, I think it's also like if you were Tom Cruise or Vin Diesel, these are like very, maybe the arguments would be back and forth over Vin Diesel, but these are very charismatic movie star leading men right mm-hmm. they are often paired on screen with ingenues yeah or in this film for example emmanuel bierre very accomplished french actress not known for north american filmmaking and english is not her first language sure so in a way like the power dynamic is going to shift to tom cruise in those scenes in a way that does not happen with redgrave where you have either in redgrave or in mirren these are very 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 accomplished powerhouse actors that the male star, it's like they're powering over him. So they, the whether it's Vin Diesel or Tom Cruise, they've got to raise their game to match their level. And because of that, you get just this spontaneous chemistry that just clicks. I think mm-hmm. it's like really effective. And I mean, if you are the lead of the movie, you want to be, you, you want to pop when you're on screen in all these moments. If you're in a room with Helen Mirren or Vanessa Redgrave, you've got to work all the harder to stand out in that scene or be blown off screen completely. I that could be it too. It is I I went more with ego. You went more with like the power of their careers versus the stars of these films. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between the two. Oh, I think ego plays a large role as well. So I think yeah, you merge the two theories and I think we've pretty much uh, summed it up there. Yeah, but it's interesting that that dynamic exists in these two different films that are very far apart from one another. Mm. But, you know, these are both, you know, film stars who are heading to spy franchises in a way. In terms of you throwing the question to be people I want to call out, I think John Voight does a good job as the leader who becomes the villain. Uh, I know John Voight is 
not as well liked in Hollywood as he once was. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But I think in, in this particular instance, I think he fills that villainous role very well. I'm not so convinced by him uh, crawling along that train. Sure. But he's, he's giving it his all, and I appreciate that. But the person I really want to tip my hat to, and I'm going to lead into this with a question to you, and a question to the listeners. Why on earth has Kittredge only been in the first film and now Dead Reckoning Part 1? I was baffled by that even back in the day because to me, like, Henry Zerny as Kittredge was so iconic in this film. That entire meeting scene with the fish tanks, how is this not just a standard of your franchise? I mean, sure, maybe you want to give him the second movie off. You got Anthony Hopkins, why not? But, like, why Mm -hmm. is Kittredge not popping up in three or four or something? He feels like a character that should just be part of that that world. He fills it out so nicely. Yeah, and, and like... At, at this point, he is at the level of Jim Phelps, mm-hmm. of, of John Voight. He is a leader of an IMF team. He's not the head of the IMF that he is in Dead Reckoning. Yeah. But I just feel like he's the perfect antidote for all of Ethan Hunt's bravado. He perfectly takes the legs out from what Tom Cruise is offering and brings him down the peg. He is the M, unfortunately making a Bond reference, of course, but, you know, M in the older films does not have a lot of time for Bond's nonsense. I feel like Henry Zerny's Kittredge could have been the same as like the guy who hands out the missions but hasn't got a lot of time for like Tom Cruise's, you know, what's what's that uh, Tommy Lee Jones line he said to Jim Carrey? I, I can't sanction this buffoonery. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like, I, it just would have been perfect. Yeah. And there's like kind of like a cynicism and also like a dancing in the gray element yeah. to that character, I think is really kind of crucial in, in informing the worldview of the spy world in this movie um where you have him at the end like meeting with max and being like hey i think we can work this out yeah between the two of us you know it's like things are going on in the shadows you know in the real world and it's people like Mm -hmm. henry zerny that while they are out for the the larger good they're also willing to make deals with people that are perhaps not the not the rosiest of folks to be making deals with and um I just don't understand why this character wasn't used more. It, yeah. it just feels so crucial. And he's also a great threat through the movie. Like when they're testing the disc and you see Henry Zerny bolting in in about 35 seconds with his team, mm-hmm. you buy he has that. You mentioned Tommy Lee Jones. He has that kind of dogged determination that you're like, this guy seems like he would be dangerous if he was after me. Yeah. I, I, I imagine there's probably a story out there as to why Henry's not in the further ones that we perhaps haven't found yet. Maybe one of these days we'll see if we can get Henry on. You don't know. But I feel like it's a missed opportunity. And it's also interesting to note the duality, and it was probably an intentional thing between this and Dead Reckoning Part 1, where like at the end of the train ends up with Henry Zerny's Kittredge making a deal on a train yep. and getting away with the data. It's exactly how this film ends too. Yep. There's a lot of connections between this and Dead Reckoning. Um both good movies. Both, Both good, good movies. movies. I know we were kind of like poking fun at Dead Reckoning earlier, but we're more bummed out by the box office performance, and we're just choosing to air that uh, that sorrow through laughter. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a whole other podcast episode about what happened in this summer's uh, box office returns. I have one other Henry Zerny moment that is amazing. Sure, and that is when you have Dunlow after the vault has been broken into. Um, standing in the far background, another split diopter shot. Yeah, and you have in the foreground Henry Zerny saying to Barnes, who was played by uh, Dale Dye, who was 
uh, often, you know, character actor, but he's also a military advisor on movies like Saving Private Ryan. Um, I think he also did Platoon. He's the one that um, runs the boot camps that actors go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, nonetheless, I mean, like, you have Henry Zerny sending Dunlow off to, uh, is it the Arctic? A radar station in Alaska, wasn't it? Or was it the or Alaska? It was, one, it was A. It was an A. It was it a was cold a. a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like such a darkly funny moment. Yeah. And you feel so bad for Dunlow, this poor sap who's done nothing wrong. But it also is just like, it gives you a sense of like kind of the meanness of Henry Zerny without you mm-hmm. fully hating him. Yeah. Uh, hashtag justice for Dunlow. Yeah, no kidding. Mm. A couple of quick likes I'm just going to throw out. I already said I love the score. That's standing. Yeah. I do just want to shout out as well that I love the team they assembled at the start. We've mentioned a couple of the names, but you know, Emilio Estevez was there as well. Kristen Scott Thomas was there. Uh, they weren't there for too long, but I think in terms of dialing into what I think made the TV show work was having that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Jim Phelps kind of running the show. And that intro is very much like an episode of Mission Impossible. And then it all goes wrong. And it sets your protagonist off on this journey throughout the film. In terms of introducing people to what Mission Impossible was and how it worked, I think it's a great way of starting the film. And I think they assembled a great you know, load of actors. Now, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily trust Emilio Estevez with my missions anymore. <laughs> uh, he, he, I've got questions about why you put him in charge. But yes, overall, great team. Yeah, I love the whole setup of that team. And that embassy mission set piece, which is about half an hour. Yeah. Um, or close to maybe twenty minutes, incredibly involving. Mm-hmm. And the way it just keeps like building in suspense as characters get bumped off one after another, really is just genius at setting the stakes of the movie. And there's just so much clever filmmaking here. The way you understand the geography of the embassy when they're taking the elevators up and down. It's all the sort of thing that's so simple in a De Palma movie, but we see so many action movies or just thrillers or whatever, or movies we're going to tackle on Spy Hearts where they just fumble that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but any other likes you want to shout out, Cam, before we move on? No, I'll just say that, like, I think, you know, we just briefly mentioned it, but that train sequence, perfect ending to the film. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely perfect. When it has that spinning helicopter blade pointing at Tom Cruise's throat and it slows down and that's kind of the end of the set piece, it is like a exhale from the audience. Like, that is a filmmaker who knows how to assemble an absolutely incredible action sequence with a great payoff to your villains. You mm-hmm. see John Voight get crushed by that helicopter and you're like, hell yes, because I think Mission Impossible is a franchise and we're going to chart this going forward, really struggles with its villains. Mm-hmm. It has good ones here in that both John Voight and Jean Reno are very effective. They're not like richly layered characters in the film, but they really stand out when they walk on screen. They have a lot of gravitas and their deaths are hugely satisfying. <laughs> yeah, you're cheering when that helicopter goes down. Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, it's very much earned. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and the debrief 
where we activate our billion dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, the spooky season is upon us, and so we're going to meet up with Dr. Frankenfurter, Riff Raff, and Magenta, and throw ourselves a Halloween party with 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Come do the time warp with us, everyone. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyheart. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Well, there you go, Cam. We've had our green light. Now it's time for the red light. Dislikes time. I've got a... I don't want to say a big one. It's a peeve at best. I think I may have the same pet peeve as you. Mm. Um, and for me, it's not... I don't know if it's the performance. The Emmanuel Bierre character of Claire. Mm-hmm. There's something missing here. And I don't know if part of the issue was that romantic triangle stuff that was cut you know, due to the advice of George Lucas to open the movie in a punchier way. Um, But this movie is setting up this sort of triangle situation where you have like a shot early in the movie where it's, you know, uh, Claire and Phelps, you know, left and right and like Ethan Hunt positioned between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And there is this sort of like moment where Claire wakes up after she's been drugged and Tom Cruise is like hovering over her and it's like kind of tender and you're like there's something going on here but the romantic sparks never really work in the movie and this aspect which really is kind of brought to the forefront where you have like John Voight saying thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife that's like kind of like giving you the um motivation for John Voight to screw over Tom Cruise and I don't think it works because I don't think that central Tom Cruise Emmanuel Bierre relationship works very well. No, I don't think there's particularly any chemistry. And yes, you're right. I think it, it, our peeve, as I use the word, is the same dislike, is how her character is treated. I don't think it's the performance. I don't think it's the actor. I think it is the script. I, I think whatever they did shoot, perhaps that never made it, that uh, George Lucas caused to not be in the film. That might be where all the rest of the the rich character work was that we lost. If it but worked. I feel like if if it worked. It may have just been like a dead zone. Who knows, right? Sure. But I feel like my take on why it didn't work is I don't feel like she has any agency in the film. Yeah. Which is a joke considering they're in the CIA. But, you know, you look at what she's doing throughout the film. She's reacting a lot of the time. She's not being very proactive as to what's going on. She's working... You know, spoilers. She is a heel the whole time, working with uh, Phelps to you know make a bunch of money and be bad guys. And you know, but it, it it basically there's no spark between her and Tom Cruise where there's supposed to be a spark. And I mean, from a, I get like the romantic lead side of things, and he wants to save her, and they they sleep together. I guess that's implied. Yeah, that weird moment where she's kissing his hand. Yeah, and I assume that led to something. I guess. Uh, yeah, but like it gives me like one thing that really bugged me about the Dark Knight Rises. This is a pivot, but you'll understand why. Is Talia Al Ghul's goal of having revenge on Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. right? It's not the reason she wants to have it, that doesn't, but the way she does it. I don't know why on earth she chose to sleep with him when she hates his guts. Right. Like that just 
in in my head it never worked for me and it always made me go like why on earth did she go to all these ex- extravagant lengths just to blow up gotham mm. like it never made any sense I, I don't think her sleeping with ethan hunt did anything to persuade him that she wasn't a bad guy because he still checked he still pretended to be jim phelps and got and sort of like um trapped her you know honey trapped her and got her to confess her sins but that so but basically so she just sort of walked her way through the film and there's she has no agency and no direction until she's found out and then and then she's shot by the love of her life anyway so it just feels like a, a sort of a pointless death well it feels like there's supposed to be a real conflict within that character mm-hmm. and that she is you know a mole basically on the mm-hmm. in the operation and she's the one that brings jean renault's krieger into the into the picture yeah but also she's someone who doesn't really have blood on her hands because nope. initially he imagines that she's the one that blew up Hannah in the car. Yeah. But then he goes, no, no, that was Phelps that did that. And then at the end, she's like, let's let Ethan live. So there's like a conflict. to This is someone who is, you know, broken bad, but doesn't want to actually hurt anyone. To me, that's a compelling villain in your movie. But it feels like she's getting short shrift. The way she's just dispatched kind of at the end in a very like an interesting way uh doesn't work well and also i'll just i'll just jump in for a second yeah. that scene where she gets killed john voigt's jim phelps has a gun to ethan hunt and she says don't do it don't kill him yeah which i'm meant to read as like she has feelings for him or she doesn't want a senseless death you could just knock him out yada 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 but why it's non-committal either have her go full heel and be like you know, cackle as as you know Barbara Carrera in Never Say Never Again, and yeah, kill him. Why not? Let's do it. Have some fun, or have her genuinely show affection for Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt, and want to protect him, and like maybe dive in front of a bullet or something like that. But again, she's just off to the side. She is just a, she's a passenger in this film. She's a witness to this film. She isn't partaking. She isn't actively engaging in this film. Well, here's a question for you: What's the best Claire moment in the movie? I've got one. Because I can name you like the best Krieger moment or Luther moment, Hunt moment, like, or Henry Zerny moment. Like, all mm-hmm. these characters have moments that pop. What's her best moment? The only moment that jumps out to me is when she turns up at the safe house at 4 a.m. and wakes up Ethan Hunt and they have an emotional scene together. But there's no, she never has a, a, a laugh moment, particularly, except for when they're like deriding her for her terrible coffee. Sure. I think maybe her punchiest moment is maybe when she, um, you know, pours the, the, the poison or whatever it is into Dunlow's drink mm. when she's like posing as the CIA secretary and she's kind of like flirty with him a little bit to, pla- to plant the tracker on him. Like she gets so little fun stuff to do in this movie. Mm. She feels like she's just kind of pouting through a lot of scenes and they're like, you're conflicted. You're conflicted. Whereas the other actors get to have more fun. Yeah, I, I think that's, like I said, pick a lane, either have her go full heel or, or full face, and she can play that straight, but she's playing it right down the middle and trying to serve everyone, and I don't think that really works for her. But as I say, this is not on her performance. I don't think it's down to her as an actor. I think it's more to do with what she was given in the script. That's So this, that's my big bugbear with this film. This may be a little bit also of 1990s, male-driven blockbuster filmmaking mm-hmm. and what they would write for a female character to do where they're not giving her like the really fun stuff to do and it's like you're the emotion of this movie yeah you're the emotion but like 
no one walks out of this movie particularly emotionally moved by this relationship. And so it just kind of falls flat. No, I, I agree with that. And I have a couple more, at least one more dislike I want to bring up, and I'll throw it to you if you have any yourself apart from Emmanuel. Okay. The other one I wanted to bring up is the beginning of this film works so well because of the team. Mm-hmm. And then it really just becomes the sort of Ethan Hunt show, which to some extent all of the films have been since yeah. this part. But I think they learned pretty quickly that one of the good elements of this, and they do start introducing people by the third film and the fourth film, you get like Simon Pegg turning up and you know, Luther comes back, yada, 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 is having a team around Ethan really adds an element to it that I think is quite enjoyable and seeing them all work together on a mission. I think it's a, to a slight detriment to the film that the last two acts are really just the Ethan Hunt show. I actually don't have a problem with this okay. because to me, like, yes, the first half hour is super fun with that team, but I have a lot of fun with him um, meeting up with Luther and Krieger and the dynamic that the three of them have. And then also, of course, you know, the Emmanuel Bear stuff is less successful, but she's a member of that team as well. But it is kind of like that introduction of those two outsider characters and the way they establish a team by the end of the movie. So I've never really had that issue. I have way more of an issue with that in the second movie, which we'll get to later. Okay. And and you could argue against me as well that he does get a team later with Jean Renault and Ving Rhames. So maybe my point is completely null and everyone's shouting at me right now. Who knows? But I'll, I'll well, go on. You've got something to say. It was a common complaint. Uh, what you're saying there about feeling like the Tom Cruise show, that was said quite often in criticisms of this movie back in the day. Okay. Well, at least uh, I, I'm on par with 1996's <laughs> you know, film critics. <laughs> I'm, I'm 30 years in the past, but I'm, I'm getting close. You're sending a write-in ballot for the Razzies to nominate this movie again <laughs> for worst writing. <laughs> it's the worst script. Emmanuel should have had more. Yeah. But what about you, Cam? Any, any dislikes in the tank we haven't mentioned? No, that really sums it up. It is just to me that, that uh, Claire storyline that just... In a movie where everything is clicking pretty much, that's the one part where I go, that they fell a little short there. I, and I think you... I did have one other one written down, but you did sort of say it earlier, which is I, I wish there was a little bit more layers to Voight mm. and Renault's characters as to why they're doing what they're doing. But I, I think you start to get that more with the villains going on. This film is really about establishing your protagonist. Who is Ethan Hunt? Because we didn't have you know eight seasons of a TV show. Ethan Hunt is a completely new character. Right. And we should note that like it's not a dislike for us, but for a lot of people, the Phelps um, you know, twist was a real betrayal of a character they loved. And if I'm to put myself in their shoes, it's like if they would make, say, an X-Files movie now where Fox Mulder was the villain. Sure. I would be pretty pissed off. So I totally get it. It just never had that impact on me because I did not watch a show growing up. And so when they had Phelps be the villain, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's the same with me with like Captain Picard. You bring him back to host a new show, and he like kills the whole whole crew or something like that. You're like, that's not what he does. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I completely get the baggage that people are bringing into it. I would almost rather they just said he isn't Jim Phelps. Sure. Yeah. Just completely because you don't have any other people. Yeah, and it's also not Peter Graves. No, who was still around, I think, at that point. Yeah, but there was the snobbery in that time. They'd be like, we're making a film. This isn't a TV show. Mm. And so the idea of bringing a TV actor, you know, as they would have probably considered him, and putting him opposite the biggest movie star in the world, or one of them at that point, no way. 
Yeah, and it's also interesting to note, you know, we talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. They still use bits from the show. You've got Pom Clementi's character is called Paris. That was Lena Nimoy's character in, in the original TV show was called Paris. There apparently is no connection. They just used a name. So they've done it again. They, a, a character with no connection whatsoever. They just used the name. So I, if there were some people that were miffed about that, I could understand it too. I'd sooner they just had a new name. Yeah. The only difference is, you know, nowadays when they adapt things, they pay much more attention to the fans and to fidelity to source material. So if they were to make this movie now, maybe they would bring Peter Graves back, you know, in a, in a timeline where all this worked out. Uh, but in 1996, that wasn't going to happen. No, I agree. Well, let's go to final notes before we get to the knock list. I have a couple of things that we haven't really touched on just yet. But Cam, let's go to you first. Close up magic. The sequence oh, yeah. where Tom Cruise is doing the disc, you know, disappearing trick to uh, rile up Krieger, I thought was fantastic. I love close-up magic on screen. I want to see it more. It's incredible. Can you do that? I know you like to do things you've seen in films and learn tricks and stuff. Can you do close-up magic? I can't. I've never actually tried. I will say, like, I've done card tricks. Okay. But I find, like, just my hands aren't dexterous enough to do that. Like, that is the real skill set is, like, magicians can pull that off because they have that kind of nimble touch. Right. And I just clearly don't have that. So maybe if I worked at it, but, like, that was also, like, a reason. I'm just inept at any sort of musical instrument or anything like that. Or or everything. Everything other than, I guess. No, everything, actually. I was going to say podcasting, but no, I think (laughs) the jury's still out there. It took us three years to do Mission Impossible. We're probably quite inept. It's all good. Yeah. A um, couple other things I just noted. Emmanuel Bierre at one point is wearing a gray suit, which is a very Hitchcockian thing to do. Hitchcock, uh, untrustworthy, usually blondes, were typically showing up in gray suits at some point. Um, also, this is a early era for Mission Impossible, where we have actual prosthetic makeup jobs for the masks. Mm. And seeing Tom Cruise made up to look like a senator doing this kentucky accent i think um it's fun to see because you do not see that in other mission impossible films they would go you know just the cg effect of having the other actor and then do the cg stitching to have the face pull i wanted to ask you a question about that and i forgot to write it down in my notes but you prompted me so thank you yeah in that scene at the end this is the uh embassy heist at the beginning of the film tom cruise pulls off that mask Okay, and it's obviously a practical mask. He pulls it off at his ear and the mask rips and it pulls away before he actually takes it off. Yeah. I'm just wondering, and people can go out and check, and we didn't ask this to Paul Hirsch, we probably should have. I wonder if that was an unintentional thing because every other time he removes a mask, he takes it off from the neck and pulls the whole thing off at once. Whereas this came off more like a prosthetic mask people would use on television. He rips the mask apart like you couldn't use that again. So I wonder if that was a... A take that didn't they had to cut it there because you didn't want to see the whole face come out right whereas they wanted him to pull it from the neck but they, he kind of ruined the mask in one take by pulling at the ear and that's why you only get a couple of seconds of him pulling at the ear and it slightly comes off and that's it that's entirely possible yeah weird little editing thing because then you could just cut away and no one would know any difference but you know the 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 visual language of the mission impossible films is they pull it at the neck and the whole thing comes off over their head he even does it later when he's pretending to be john voight it's true yeah and i was gonna say in regards to the masks as well off the opening when you have that scene of emmanuel bierre's character drugged on the bed Mm -hmm. um when it ends and all the walls come down and yep. you revealed this whole thing where they were duping the guy was a was a scam. Reminded me a lot of the Wolf Blitzer scene in um, 
in Fallout. Yeah. Where they have the guy on the bed and Wolf Blitzer on TV and then all the walls come down and the guy finds out the whole thing was a con. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm sure there's people screaming at us to have watched all of the TV show, that they did that in the show and it's just a callback to that sort of thing. Because I could see them making a fake set and tricking people. Yeah, although I would be very interested to know how many people who worked on this movie in the 90s were fans of the TV show. Hmm? I don't think De Palma was. I'd be surprised. I'm sure they watched a little bit just to get an idea of like some of the things that they do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have a couple of notes. Uh, and two of them are focused around Henry Zerny because I love the guy. Sure. First one. And this is a question to you, but people will let us know if Cam answers incorrectly. What was Kittridge's plan at the embassy? At the embassy? Um, he wanted to expose them all. Right. So the person that uh, I guess would get away with the disc would be the mole. Okay. So he was just going to let them... Because he's not the reason why they all died. That no. is John Voigt and Jean Renault. Yes. Right? But who hacked the lift? Is that, is that John Voigt? Did he cause... That's John Voigt, yes. John Voigt did that, right. So Kittridge's team is just sort of there watching the whole time. They're not involved in any of the death. Right. But who were they going to pick up at the end? What was the point? Well, the goal was to track down Job, and that would have been John Voigt's character. So they would have followed... Because obviously in Kittredge's mind, the mission would have been a success. Mm -hmm. And they would have exfiltrated the building. Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt would have taken the tape off of the guy leaving the building somehow from some sort of exchange with some magic or whatever. And they would have all gone back to the safe house, right? That's Yeah. That's the plan if it went. And then they would have then exposed John Voight as the mole. Is that the idea? I think so. And I, I also think like they must have suspected Phelps yeah. because they ha bring him the tape at the start with the mission. Yeah. And it's the fact that Ethan Hunt is the only one who makes it out alive that I think shifts the focus to him. And the money that was sent to his family, probably by John Voight. Yes, because the whole knock list at the embassy was a fake. Mm. So the whole thing was just driven to uh, expose someone who's a mole. Yeah, all this information is there. This, that bit needed a little bit of cleaning up in my head, and maybe some of yours too. And I'm sorry if I wasted your time otherwise. The other question was, and you mentioned the mission tape at the start. Henry Zerny's Kittredge records that tape for some reason. And I can't get the idea out of my head because this is an analog age. Yeah. There's no digital editing at this point. I wonder how many in, in the mission universe, how many times and how many takes he has at that tape. Well, having recorded like brief snippets of promos for this podcast, it's rarely mm -hmm. done on the first take. Yeah. So to have something that efficiently done, it's going to take a, probably him a couple takes. Although maybe at this point he's done hundreds of these things. So it's just like, you know, a snap of the fingers for him, but it would take a while. I want to hear the Kittridge outtakes. No kidding. Maybe like moments where um, he's recording and the secretary walks in and disrupts the recording, like moments like that. Um, yeah, or like a bird flies into the window. <laughs> or like very early, like work from home and like his dog comes and sits down next to him and makes a big noise and he's like, Rufus, how dare you? <laughs> exactly. Or like the neighbors upstairs are making too much noise and he's like banging on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to give them a mission they may choose to accept. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? And the other note I had was I noted down how much money Kittredge makes per year, uh, which was $62,000. Mm -hmm. 
1996. For those keeping track, that is currently worth $122,000 now. Is that a good salary for someone in his position? Doesn't seem terrible to me. Um, I could live off of that. In, in pounds, that's 96,000 pounds. Yeah, I could easily live off that. Because that's US dollars. You apply that to Canadian dollars, I'm making like $75 million a year. <laughs> that, that ain't bad. That ain't yeah. bad. Yeah, that's accurate I, math. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, th- don't question that. Don't Google that, folks. Just accept it. Just accept yeah. that mission. Yeah. And I, I think the final note I want to end this section on is, and we, I, I asked you about like the best set piece in this film, and this will probably be an episode we do long in the future when we do like a recap of all the missions. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find a more iconic shot in any of the mission films than Tom Cruise hanging on that wire in the Langley extraction. No. Uh, yeah, I don't know that there's a lot that compares. Uh, that is the shot. Like, if you were to just throw up a banner, Mission Impossible to represent the movie franchise, that's the centerpiece of the poster. Yeah, and 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 everyone would understand exactly what it is as well. It's a heist, and they'd know because everyone's probably seen that shot. Maybe not this film, but they've seen that shot. But uh, yeah, let us know, folks. Is there another shot in this film or the Mission franchise that's more iconic than Tom Cruise on the rappel cord coming down to extract the data? I'm not too sure. But speaking of not too sure, we have one final question to answer, and that is the knock list. Mm. This is the first time a Mission Impossible film has the opportunity to make the list of the need-to-see official classics of the spy movie genre. So, Cam, the question goes to you first. Mission Impossible? Is the film that introduced the knock list making the knock list? Mission Impossible is going to be a very interesting franchise to tackle from this point of view because its batting average is really good. Mm -hmm. Like, very, very strong. And so it's going to be a real, I think, battle to try to determine which ones are kind of the best of the best and belong on the knock list. To me, this one, 100% yes. I think this one represents like the best of what like spy blockbusters could be in the 90s. Uh, it's an important one to go back to. Like, I don't think you can watch Dead Reckoning in the same way if you haven't seen this movie. Like this one so much informs the future of the franchise and that it is done so confidently with so many set pieces that still hold up. This one's just a home run for me. I had a feeling you'd say that, funnily enough. I'm so in the bag for this because it's like there are other ones that I'm debating in my head whether they're better. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the ones that have had the most connection with me on a personal level, it's this one. Nothing compares. Yeah, there's definitely that. I mean, I probably have less of a personal connection to this film. There's one I do have a very personal connection with, which we'll get to eventually. But is that a better film than this? We'll see. But Mission Impossible 1. I mean, it's hard to find. We found a fault, and I think it's a good fault to explore, and I think we did. But is this a need-to-see official classic? I don't think there's any question. Yeah. It is one of the greatest spy movies ever made, made by one of the greatest directors ever, Brian De Palma, starring one of the greatest film stars of all time, Tom Cruise, aided by a bunch of greats who are, some of them still acting, and some of them still great. I can't fault the action. I can't fault the character work. I can't really fault almost anything about this film. It is a slam dunk. And I'm glad it exists. And I'm glad that the Mission Impossible films, for the most part, going forward from this, really did use this as the blueprint. This is the Goldfinger of the Mission franchise. 
Yeah, and it also, I think, in some ways scared the Bond producers into upping the ante. And that would not necessarily work out great with something like Die Another Day, but you see the way that going forward with that franchise, they got more and more serious about, like, these movies have to deliver in a big way, and that's when you get the whole Daniel Craig era, I think partly as a response to these movies. Yeah, absolutely. And the stunts got better and better from the Bonds, I think, partially due to this too, and the Bonds, of course. But yeah, to answer the question, absolutely this is making the knock list. And as such, very proud to say, two yeses, Mission Impossible from 1996 is making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Are you happy, folks? We did it. (laughs) Believe us, folks, as much as we joke, we want to do Mission Impossibles very early on too. Yeah, we thought about other ways of trying to work it in, but the, it felt the right time now with Dead Reckoning hitting cinemas. Probably not by the time this comes out, of course, it'll probably be gone. But we'd moved on from Bond for a little while. We wanted to talk about the big tentpole of the spy franchises, the spy movies, I should say, and it doesn't get much bigger than the Mission Impossible franchise. So I'm glad we're finally talking about it, and we're going to keep going into the franchise a bit more, and we're going to explore some more of the films. They'll be coming your way too. But, of course... Don't forget to tune in to our two Spymaster interviews coming out next week with Paul Hirsch, the editor of this film, along with many other films. Look up his credits, folks. He's had one hell of a career, along with Ingeborg Adapkaneti, who plays Hannah as part of the IMF team. Both wonderful interviews, very insightful, and a lot of behind-the-scenes information of what it's like to work with Mr. Tom Cruise. That's right. If you like what you heard on this episode this week, please consider telling your friends about the show. Share the love on social media and leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And speaking of social media, do not forget to follow us discreetly as always at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you. (laughs) 